Let's pray. God, we do give you awe and praise and thanksgiving that you have humbled yourself to become like us, the God of all creation, now cradled in the arms of his earthly mother, Mary. And what a humble, beautiful picture that is of our God who rules and reigns over all things and yet is willing to subject himself to frail humanity. We praise you for that. And we do give you adoration and glory and all the honor that you deserve. And I thank you, Jesus, that your purpose in coming was ultimately to be a sacrifice for our sins. You entered into this story knowing full well what it would cost you, that you would give your life over to death on the cross so that the penalty for our sin might be graciously paid by our God, so that your position toward us would not be wrath for our sin and the injustice that we have done, but instead would be love and acceptance and mercy and kindness. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I just ask that as we look at your word this morning, that our hearts would be turned to you in adoration, that we would be transformed and further conformed into the image of Christ, that as we simply look at your grace in this great act of salvation, that our hearts would be drawn to love you more and to be more like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, and then I'm actually going to have you uh, turn to Titus in a minute, but let's read this together. This is hopefully a passage of scripture that is very familiar to you. So Luke chapter 2, pick up in verse 8. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, this is a pretty standard passage of scripture leading up to the celebration of Christmas. And this is where I want us to start this morning as we kind of consider Christ as our sacrifice. Um, we're in this Advent series, kind of preparing and waiting for Christmas Day. And we began by thinking about Jesus as he is fully man. And then we moved to talk about Jesus being fully God. And today we're going to ponder what it means that Jesus is our sacrifice for sin. It is the sacrifice of his life in death that saves us. So we see the angel here in Luke explain the basics of this idea to these shepherds, these uneducated men. He says, the angel says, he brings good news of great joy. 
And what is that good news? Verse 11 tells us a Savior is born. If you're in trouble, it is good news that there is someone who can save you. So what I want to do this morning is think about what we are saved from and then what we are saved for. So now turn with me in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus is just a little bit before Hebrews there. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. And while you're turning there, Titus 2, imagine a scene with me where you're walking through your neighborhood and you find this cute little um, Labrador puppy that is being just assailed by a pack of coyotes. And you can tell it won't be long before that cute little puppy is devoured by these vicious coyotes. And so you feel compelled to step in, right? You find a burst of courage and you grab a stick because there's lots of those in Arizona where we have no trees. But you get the point. You go after the coyotes and you manage to chase them away. And here's now this cute little puppy. It has no tags. You don't know where it belongs. And so what do you do? You decide to rescue it and take it into your home and Give it a place where it will be cared for. Well, in this silly little illustration, we could say that you saved that puppy from certain death at the hands of the coyotes, and you saved this puppy for a new life in your home rather than a life on the streets fending for itself where inevitably at some point it would probably be devoured, right? And so in a similar fashion, Titus chapter 2 is going to tell us that Christ our Savior has saved us from something and saved us for something. So let's read this together. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul and he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession are zealous for good works. This passage is a really great summary of just what it means to be a Christian. And so if you're the highlighting type, and this isn't already highlighted in your Bible, this would be a couple of verses for you to highlight or underline. And before anything else, let's think for just a moment on verse 11. We are told that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What I find interesting about this verse is that it it seems to kind of personify grace, right? Grace is not a person. Grace is an idea. It is a concept. It's, It's an abstract. But Paul tells us that grace has appeared and it brings us salvation and it trains us. And when you read these statements, it's almost as if you can see a person in action, right, working. And I think that's exactly what this verse is attempting to do as it points us to Christ. Because it is Jesus who has appeared in creation, and it is through him that we receive our salvation 
And it is he who trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so my point here is just to kind of remind you of a few of the things that we've learned over the last couple of weeks, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has appeared to man. And Jesus is not only a man, he is also the living embodiment of all that is divine and good and holy. So in Jesus, we find wisdom incarnate. In Jesus, we find truth incarnate and love incarnate and justice incarnate and grace incarnate. And we could go on and on and on, holiness incarnate. All of the attributes of God are bodily found in the person of Jesus Christ. Because God has come to man to bring salvation through Christ, therefore grace has appeared. So then what is grace really? I mean, this is a word, particularly at church, we toss around a lot. I'm not sure how well you can define it. Let's think about it for a couple of minutes. If this grace has appeared, and that's good news that the angels sang to the shepherds, then what exactly are we talking about when we talk about grace? What is the grace that you and I have received through the appearing of Jesus Christ? Well, probably the best way to understand grace, maybe a definition you're familiar with, is simply to define, define grace as unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. God's grace is the favor that he shows to you and I as sinners, though we don't deserve it though we have not earned it, though we could not ever earn it. God loves us, even though we have rebelled against him. That is unmerited favor. It's kindness offered that you don't deserve. It is the good news that the angels brought of great joy that a Savior is born to us. It is peace offered to you and me and mankind, though we have not earned that peace. You can think about grace a little bit like maybe an, uh, a mother holding her newborn child. What has that child ever done to earn the love and affection of the mother? And the answer to that is nothing. If anything, you know, that child has spent nine months making the mother suffer with morning sickness and back pain and strange cravings for weird foods like pickles, right? And then the child is born and that whole process comes through pain and suffering. And then the mother holds that child and that child keeps her up in the middle of the night and cries and requires diapers to be changed. The mother's love for her newborn child is an act of grace, because that child has yet to do anything that could merit or earn the love and the favor of that mother. And so it is with God's grace towards us. He favors us. He loves us, not because of anything that we have done to be worthy of that favor, but only because it is in his nature as God to love and to give and to sacrifice and so his love towards you, his love towards me is all grace, all of it. But I want to give you three ways specifically in which God's grace appears to us through Christ. And I'll show you in a minute how I think this text supports this. First, though, we have the grace of the incarnation. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that the incarnation itself is an incredible act of God's grace towards you? God showered his kindness upon mankind by choosing to become one of us, become like us. Isn't it interesting that God didn't choose to enter into the creation he made as some high and mighty king or as some superhuman, super strong giant? He didn't come into this creation as a tree or a river or a squirrel or a tiger. When God chose to enter into the creation that he made, he chose to come as a man because God has favored mankind over all of the things that he has made. God never chose to even become an angel as great as they are. When they fell into sin, he abandoned them to that sin and cast them into chains of gloomy darkness. And what's more amazing about the fact that God has showed his grace in the incarnation by becoming man like you and I is that of all the creatures in all of his creation, who is the least deserving of God to become like them. Consider the fact that in all of this material creation, it was man alone that rose up in rebellion against God. In the spiritual realm, the angels did so, and they were condemned. In the material realm, only man. And how does God choose to respond to our rebellion? He does not cast us off, but in an act of great grace, he becomes like us. And so the one earthly creature that God should justly and rightly despise above every other creature with the most wrath and fury is the one creature that God chooses to appear to sharing the same nature. That is grace. That is some unmerited favor that God would choose to become like us though in our sinful rebellion we wanted to be nothing like him in all of his excellency. The second way in which God's grace has appeared is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this is probably the area where we're most familiar with grace, I would think. Because in the crucifixion, Jesus becomes our sacrifice for sin. He takes our wicked and evil deeds upon himself And he, of his own free will, chooses to suffer and die for our sin. And in place of our sin, he gives to us his righteousness so that we might live. And that is unmerited favor. Uh, I guess if I can attempt a very crude illustration, it's a little bit like my son and I eating some delicious barbecue ribs, right? And we're wearing our brand new Christmas outfits to celebrate for church and be with family on Christmas Eve, right? And I tell my son, be careful, right? These barbecue ribs and your nice new clothes, they don't really mix very well, so be careful. And then he carelessly drops that barbecue rib anyway, and it just rolls slowly down his shirt, ruining the whole thing, right? And because I love him and because I favor him, I trade shirts with him. And he wears my clean clothes and I take his barbecue rib-stained Christmas outfit for my own. Now, my son is sitting there thinking, that's not how this would work, Dad. You're the clumsy one. I'd be trading shirts with you. (laughs) But you get the point. 
In the cross of Christ, Jesus becomes our sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice we've never been worthy of. Grace has appeared because Jesus willingly chose to take upon himself the sin that is rightly yours, your ruin. And he suffered and he died in your place. And in exchange for the penalty of your sin, what he gives to you is love and righteousness. And look, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, Grady, you say this kind of thing every Sunday. Yes, I do. And let us never think that this is something normal that is not worthy of praise and adoration. Or something that we can shrug our shoulders at and say, yeah, but I, you know, I'm a good person. I kind of deserved that. No. Let this never become familiar to us. God's love and concern for us is all of grace. But we also see God's grace in sanctification. And I think maybe this is where the idea of grace is probably most foreign to us. Many people think that grace is this thing that you get when you first place your faith in Jesus. As if grace only means forgiveness, right? I've received grace. My sins have been forgiven. But God's grace is also God's ongoing favor towards us who remain undeserving of his love. See, you were not undeserving of his love before you came to faith in Jesus, and now, because your faith is in Jesus, you are deserving of his love by virtue of your actions. No. You remain undeserving of this love. And so God's gracious favor is shown to man that in all of the glorious places in this creation where God could choose to dwell he dwells in you. He dwells in me. He chooses to make his home not in the heart of the sun or at the center of the Milky Way galaxy or at the top of some incredible mountain. No, God makes his home in you, in human hearts, in the hearts of men and women who turn to him in faith and trust. And so the Spirit of God dwelling in each and every one of us every single day, that is grace, my friends. Do you understand that you are still under the weight of God's grace? It's God's power to sanctify us, to make us holy like him. That's, that's grace. God's favor to make the dwelling place of God be with man through the Spirit of God in the heart's of his people. That is a wonderful display of God's favor. And grammatically, if you look at verses 11 and 12 there, it's the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so God's grace is God's daily ongoing tool to make us righteous. It is his tool for training, which means that grace is so much more than just forgiveness. It is the transformational force of God in our lives through the Spirit of God daily teaching us the way of Jesus. And so not only is our salvation an act of grace, but also all of our good deeds, they flow from God's grace. Now, each of these areas of grace, I think, are here in our text from Titus. If you want to look again, first it says the grace of God appeared. Well, that's the incarnation. It has appeared in the person of Jesus. Second, the grace of God brings salvation. 
That's the crucifixion. And third, verses 12 through 14 tell us that grace brings sanctification, specifically training us to renounce ungodliness. And so the whole life of the Christian is grace. And we cannot live without it. If you are to succeed in becoming like Jesus, your Lord and Savior, then all of that success must come from God's grace. So let's come back to that puppy that you rescued from the street. Remember that puppy? You rescued it from something, those coyotes, and then you rescued it for something, which is a new home in your house. Well, Jesus came to bring salvation, and he saved us from something, and he saved us for something. So if you look at verse 14, we see there a picture of what God saved us from. It says that he saved us from lawlessness. That is rebellion against God. That is another word for sin. See, God is the great moral law giver. Why does your conscience know that some things are right and other things are wrong? Well, because there is a God. And he is a moral God, and he has expectations for his creatures. And because God is a just God, not only has he given you a conscience to know right from wrong and given you his word to explain it, God also expects obedience to the point where he will punish those who do not keep his law. And his law is actually not complicated. You know, you might think, yeah, that, that Old Testament, right? All those books there and all those laws and commandments. No, God's law is not complicated and it's not arbitrary either. God's law is good and God's law is simple. We were literally created to serve God, to worship him, to give him glory, to find joy in his presence you want to know what the purpose of your life is? That's it. To serve God, to find joy in his presence, to give him glory. And so God's desire is that according to the nature that he has given to us, we would love him and treasure him above all other things as the greatest good and the satisfaction of our souls. That is what God is. He is the greatest good and he is the satisfaction of your soul. If you want to know why your soul is dissatisfied, it is because it is not deeply connected enough to the God who gave you life. And so God's law is that you would know him and love him and honor him as God and as creator. And out of that law that we would love God flows the second greatest law, maybe you know it, that we being like God would then love others. God loves others. And in his love for other people, he is perfectly satisfied and joyful. And so he gives to us, his children, this law that we would also love others so we might be joyful and satisfied like God. But we have not kept God's law, have we? We have fallen short of his expectation. Worse than that, we've not merely failed. We've actually actively rebelled against this law. We have loved ourselves and we have hated God. We have 
cared only for us at the expense of others. And as lawbreakers then, we're condemned. We are judged. We are ruined. We are under the wrath of God for our rebellion against him. And this is why then Jesus, who is the grace of God, has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now that phrase, all people, doesn't mean that Jesus therefore saves all people. It only means that Jesus comes to truly and freely make salvation available to all people. Not a particular class or education level or career or skin color or ethnic origin or country, but to all people. That if we come to him in trust, He will give us the grace that I have just told you all about. He'll pour it out on us. And he will take upon himself the wrath of God that rightly belongs to you and to me. And instead, he will clothe us in his own righteousness. And so let me be very clear on this. I want you to really understand this point. If we ask the question, what are we saved from as Christians? We're not merely saved from sadness or despair or even hell or sin or injustice or condemnation. Most importantly, Jesus saves us from the wrath of God that rightly belongs to us because we are sinners, because we are guilty of lawlessness in his eyes. The lawlessness of lovelessness. The law is that we would love God and love others, and we have not done so. And so God's wrath is upon us for our failure to love God in obedience and love others in generosity as an outflowing of the love that we have received. We are therefore placed under the wrath of God for sin until we receive Christ as our sacrifice. And he takes that wrath upon himself. And so here's the good news the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, just boiled down to its simplest, most pure element. Here is the gospel. God saves us from God. That is what you are saved from. The willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is God, saves us from the wrath of God, who is holy and perfect and just for the sins that we have committed. And so praise God for his grace towards us that all of this is ours, though we do not deserve it, though we are his unworthy creatures. Now, having been saved from the wrath of God for our lawlessness through the sacrifice of Christ, what are we saved for? Read these verses with me one more time. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
who are zealous for good works. Now, there's a lot in there, but let me try and simplify it by breaking it just down into two essential categories that I want to talk about. First, we're saved in order that we might live godly lives in this present age. Did you catch that? We've been saved so that we might no longer be lawless people, so that instead we might follow the law of God and be like him in what we do. We are to be like the one who has redeemed us, pure of heart, devoted to the things that he is devoted to, single-minded in our pursuit of what pleases God, like Gabe was saying, obedient in our actions, full of trust for the one who said, follow me, invested in the kingdom of God, not merely the kingdom of men, serving God as his messengers of peace and hope and reconciliation, waging the war against the desires of the flesh that threatened to destroy us so that we might instead walk in the fruit of the Spirit. So we are saved in order that we might live godly lives. And here's what I really want to emphasize for us this morning. See it there at the end of verse 12. I keep mentioning this. The emphasis is on heaven, right? No, it's on this present age. It's my experience that, sadly, all too often when Christians talk about what it is they are saved for, they think only of the life that is to come. The salvation that they have received through Christ is only something that is meaningful for them after they die. They talk in terms of the future. That the godliness that they have is one that will one day be theirs when they die and go to heaven. But here we see that our salvation is intimately wrapped up with this present moment, with this age, with this day. Now, that's not to say that heaven is not important for the Christian. It's only to say that we as Christians dare not wait until heaven before we begin to live lives that please our Savior who bought us with his blood. Why would we wait for that? See, Christianity is an intensely imminent faith, which is to say that God is deeply concerned with this present moment. God lives outside of this moment, but he is present with you in this moment. And this moment is an important one in his eyes. God is concerned with what we will do with the choices that we must make here and now, today, in this life surrendering our lives to him. And so I want you to understand, my friends, that Jesus came to save you for here and now. Also for eternity, yes, but he came to change your life now, to train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions now, in this present age, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And this is part of what it means for God's grace to appear, to bring salvation. And so our gospel, my friends, is a transformational gospel. It is about a changed life that is yours through Christ, now and for eternity. 
But we are also saved for a blessed hope, which we wait for. Verse 13 tells us that blessed hope is the day that is at some point in the future when Christ will appear again. Now notice in these verses that we have two appearances of Christ. Did you catch that? The first appearance is when Jesus came bringing grace. He came as a child born to the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem. And at that first appearance, Jesus came to expose our sin and to offer hope in the midst of it, to bring grace that our lives might be changed to be like his. And we have this hope as Christians that Jesus has not left us as orphans, which means that there is a second appearing that is coming. And at his second appearance, Jesus will not arrive with humility in a manger discreetly in some far off place. No, he will arrive with all of the power and authority and majesty of God. And in that second appearance, he will finally and fully defeat sin. He will reward us for our lives of godliness. And he will invite us into an eternity where our lives are holy and eternally his. On that day, he will claim for us, he will claim us for his own. All of us who in this life have lived with zeal and passion to follow him and be like him, to drink deeply of the grace that he offers that we might be transformed into his image. And what a great day that day will be when Christ comes again. This is what the candles burn for. The advent, the waiting of the return of our God of grace, when he will bring a day for us full of blessedness, where the hope that we have had in this life that sustains us, when that hope is finally transformed from expectation into satisfaction. So if you were bummed last week that I didn't really give you any application uh, connected to my sermon. Well, let me just heap it on you this week. And I'm not going to go into all of it. You can just reread Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. Since Jesus has come to be our sacrifice and he has brought us salvation through his grace, then we are drawn by that grace into a response to say it another way, since Jesus has showed us his love by becoming a sacrifice for us, we sacrifice as a loving response to what he has done. Our lives as Christians are a living sacrifice. Our response to his grace then is that we train ourselves for righteousness. We renounce ungodliness. We cast off lawlessness. We refuse to be people who are loveless. We deny worldly passions. We live lives that are self-controlled. We are upright and godly for the sake of his glory, not by our own power, though we struggle with every fiber of our being, but by his grace, because we are redeemed and we are purified. And so we give ourselves with zeal and passion to this work. 
since Christ then is our sacrifice for sin, we make our lives a sacrifice for him. Let me pray. God, we thank you that your grace has appeared in your son Jesus and that through his sacrifice, we have received salvation. And Lord, we thank you that that grace continues with us every day of our lives through the spirit in us. Grace not only to forgive us of our failures when we fall short, although praise you for that, but grace to actually do what Jesus commanded. Grace to follow in his footsteps. Grace to continue our training that we might be like him. And so we thank you for that. And I pray that just as Christ made himself a sacrifice, that we would be redeemed I pray that we would be people who make our lives a sacrifice for his glory. In Christ's name, amen.